When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you ever think to yourself that gardening is starting to get a little bit complicated? You're not alone. With all the different hacks and influencers and products out there, there tends to be also a lot of misinformation. If that's how you feel about gardening and plant care right now, then this is the podcast for you. My name's Ashley and I'm a soul scientist and I like to take that science and apply it to all things plants. I am Canadian, but my methods to madness apply to anyone, anywhere. If you like the sounds of that, be sure to stay tuned. On this podcast, we're going to be reviewing products, going over the science, and even doing some in-person interviews with industry experts and people such as yourself. So if you want to join in, be sure to share and leave a comment down below. Hello, plant people. It is Ashley here. Welcome to the very first Gardening in Canada podcast. I am so excited that you are here. Let me know in the comments if you enjoy podcasts and be sure to rate this podcast. I think that's a thing. Uh, You should be able to find it on iTunes, Anchor, and Spotify, as well as on YouTube and places such as that. Now, I'm assuming that the podcast is going to be very similar to the YouTube channel. It's going to take me a bit of time to learn the ropes on audio and that sort of thing, so I apologize for the rough edges that you may experience for this first little bit, but I've never done a podcast before, so I'm just working my way into it, if that makes sense. A lot of you are going to be excited about this because it is longer form information and I think that that is incredibly important. If you didn't know, because I haven't really mentioned it, I did start a Patreon. On that Patreon, my intent is to open it up to you guys and open this podcast up to you. If you choose to go on the Patreon, you have the opportunity to be a part of this podcast. So once a month, I want to select one of the subscribers to come on to this podcast to discuss exactly what's going on in their garden, their garden issues, and maybe even share some tips and tricks that they like to use. So be sure to check that out. Otherwise, we'll be just be doing regular um, Gardening in Canada topics throwing in some science, and potentially going to have some industry professionals on here that I know. Uh, I just have to rally them and uh, get them out of their shy zone and bring them over to the dark side of uh, social media and talking and YouTubing. So if that makes any sense. 
I thought it would be really fun today to go right back to the basics and just talk about gardening in general and how to start a garden in a cold climate. So if you are new to this podcast or you're new to the Gardening Canada crew, you probably don't know that while it is gardening in Canada, it actually does apply to a huge number of people across the globe that have to deal with winter is essentially what the issue is. We don't get the Californian luxuries that everyone else does. And so we have some other things to contend with. Let's first explore when we should start our seeds indoors and that sort of fun thing. So I've said this before that seeding schedules and zones don't really matter when it comes to starting seeds. What does matter is what you have available at your fingertips. So for example, if you have an awesome grow light set up, if you have a professional greenhouse where you can heat it, that sort of thing, then there's no reason why you can't start your seeds a little bit earlier. The issue lies when you don't have the intense lighting and you don't have that outdoor greenhouse. Larger plants tend to not transplant well, and especially plants that have started flowering and blooming in the vegetable or the fruit world, they definitely do not like being transplanted. So, Don't rely so much on your zone. That's my number one tip when it comes to seed starting. Go with what you have available at your fingertips. Now, for some people, you're going to be very limited as to what you have. So save the money, save the time, save the stress, and just go to the garden market and purchase some plants. I did uh, do a YouTube video on just regular lighting and using regular light bulbs for starting seedlings. There's no reason why you can't do that. And the setups usually for starting seeds are pretty cheap and inexpensive, so it's definitely an option to consider. I personally start my seeds pretty late in the season compared to other people. That's starting to change mostly because of the YouTube channel and stuff. I need content. And I need to be one step ahead of a huge majority of Canada. But typically in zone three, for a lot of things like tomatoes and peppers, I really didn't start those until mid to late March, typically on a regular basis. And that was because I don't like transplanting big plants. They do simply just do not do well. So that is something to keep in mind. I do have those seed charts that you can get over on Etsy. They're $3.00. And they're really simple to follow, though you just basically have to know your zone and you can follow those exactly how you want them. But number one tip, don't lean on it too hard. Don't stress out about it too, too much. And just keep in mind your space and your lighting because you're going to put in a lot of hard work. You're going to germinate a lot of seeds and then you're going to be in an absolute standstill because you're not going to have anywhere to put the seedlings. One thing I will say too is that with the the seedlings and that sort of thing, if you have too many, just start giving them away. Don't keep them. Don't stress yourself out about it. It's not necessary. You don't need to do that whatsoever.
Number two gardening tip for cold climates, do not rush putting the plants outdoors. This year, I already know with the weather systems moving through, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to jump the gun. It feels really warm. It feels really nice. But you live in a cold climate and it will come back and bite you. So despite the fact that it seems like you could honestly set up your greenhouse and everything will be hunky-dory here and it's beginning of March, trust me on this, this is not permanent. Winter's coming back. It's not going to stay away. So deep breath and wait. Make sure you follow your frost-free day, your last frost-free day for um, your zone and then go from there. Typically after the last frost free day, I do like to watch that forecast for about a week or two after that point, because frost can suddenly pick up out of nowhere. If it does just a light bed sheet is usually enough, especially if it's just a nice light frost to keep your plants happy but there's nothing worse feeling than planting an entire garden and then the frost rolling in it does not sit well with anyone not only that your plants are already stressed out from transplanting and then you've got a frost on top of that you're gonna have a stunted growth it's just not going to end well so do not rush that transplant process when it comes to the soil prep and knowing when it's time to actually get into the garden, whether you're doing no dig or an actual till, you want to ensure that that soil moisture isn't too high. If it's too high, two things are going to happen. One thing, your seed's going to rot because it's not going to get enough oxygen. It's going to be anaerobic and anaerobic bacteria and fungi, that sort of thing. It's just going to wipe your colony, your, your actual seedling out. Now, The other issue with wet soil in the spring in cold climates is that wet soil tends to be very cool and that cool soil is not great at germinating seeds. So again, you're going to end up with rot and lack of germination, potentially um, just death of seedlings due to disease, bacteria, fungi, that sort of thing. It's called dampening. You could end up with some dampening happening or you may end up with chlorosis on your transplants, which is essentially when the roots are in waterlogged soil and they aren't able to uptake all the nutrients that those plants need to survive. So just wait until that soil moisture is gone. The best way to test your soil moisture to know whether or not your soil is uh, the perfect time to basically start gardening is to make a snowball in your hand. So dig out some soil, place it in the palm of your hand and make a snowball. If you can formulate a snowball and it doesn't fall apart and you didn't add water at all, it's just straight out of the ground, that's a sign that it's probably too wet still. If you can then drop that snowball from about waist height down onto the ground and it still doesn't lose its shape, it's definitely too moist to plant in. So you have two options. Your first option is leave it and let the sun and evaporation, the wind, run its course and try to take some of that water out of that system. 
Or second option, if you are okay or you're comfortable with tilling, is to actually rototill that soil. And that is going to exponentially increase the rates of evaporation. The only issue with doing this is that it is very difficult to rototill properly in moist soil or in soaking, sopping wet soil. It tends to clump up, especially if you have a clay. Now, what that means is you're going to end up with aggregates or giant chunks of soil once it does dry out and you will have to essentially go over that area again to break up those larger chunks whether that's with a shovel or rototiller again or just a rake whatever the case is you're going to have to break up those larger aggregates that were formed from trying to turn or tumble moist soil now, there's no reason why you can't rototill, and especially with wet soil. And if you have a high water table or you have overly saturated clay soil, this is sometimes your only option. And you can talk to large-scale farmers about this, and they will tell you that they do this with the ponds or the sitting water that they have in their low land areas. They will go through it with a disc to turn that up, to expose it to more air, to allow that dry out to happen. So if you've got a low-lying area, if you have a high water table, if you have this issue and it's commonly seen in the spring, try rototilling and see what happens. It's It does work. Now, if you are not into tillage and you want to do a no-dig garden, you can really start at any point in time. Because you have to add that soil to the surface anyways, you're adding a compost or manure, whatever the case is, to that surface of the soil, You, your baseline is completely based off what you're using. So the soil moisture below should be of little to no concern of you because your seedling honestly is not going to utilize that for many, many weeks to come. The only issue that arises is if you are transplanting. And so this is where no dig or low dig gardens technically aren't no dig gardens. They do have some um, tillage in them. And what we call it on a large scale, on a market garden type scale or on a farm scale would be a low till system. So you are still digging holes, you're digging some small pits in the soil surface. And so in those low till systems, depending on how moist it is, you may have to wait because you will end up with a pocket despite it being a compost or a manure on top. How much you add will also determine whether or not this is the case if you have a foot of manure or compost or potting soil, whatever you're using, fresh soil, then you're obviously, you're not going, you're not too concerned with what's underneath. But if you're just doing two inches, then this may be something to con- uh, take into consideration. Plants do transplant well into moist soil. So you want some baseline of moisture. You don't want to be completely dried out and flaky and falling apart. You do want some in that profile and it's just about balance and getting there. So try that snowball test to start off with and then see see where it goes for you. The next part about gardening in cold climates is reducing that transplant shock and 
it all starts about two weeks before you actually are planning to put the plants outdoors. And this is balance. This takes so much balance in a cold climate because two weeks before your last frost date, you you may end up with some cooler days still, especially when you're two weeks out. So it's all about balance when it comes to hardening off those plants and reducing that transplant shock. So hardening off, if you don't know, I have a video on this, but it happens approximately two weeks before the day that you're supposed to put your plants outside. What you're gonna do is you're going to put your plants in a shady location, in a sheltered shady location, where it's not exposed to too much wind and it's not exposed to too much light. This is going to do two things. It's going to retrain your stomata and your guard cells to be able to withstand a high level of water movement. And it's going to help your plant adjust to the new rates of something called evapotranspiration, which is a fancy word of saying the rate in which soil is evaporated or water is evaporated from the soil and evaporated from the leaves. So it's going to help regulate that system. The second thing it's going to do is it's going to slowly adjust the plant to the new sun and the new intensity of that sun. Grow lights are not as intense as sunshine is and therefore when we switch them into full sunshine we may end up with some burn. You can't come back from burn from sun. If a leaf is burnt it is done. It has to be removed because it's it's just going to brown and it's going to fall off. So those are kind of your two systems. You're going to want to do that first stage, that really nice gentle stage for anywhere from three to five days, depending on the type of plant it is and how sensitive you think that plant may be. Your typical vegetable will be just fine. If you're starting to move houseplants outdoors for, for the winter or for the summer, then that definitely you want to use some caution with because tropical plants, I personally find, um, don't do as well with hardening off it takes them a little bit more time so i would suggest about a week for those guys um succulents as well i find that have have that issue too they don't like a quick transfer in changes of environment so nice and gradual that second week is going to be the week where you start bringing it out maybe into a bit more wind and a bit more light and you're going to place it in full sun for an hour max a day for that first day the next day you're going to do an hour and a half maybe two hours and then three hours four hours five hours for that entire second week what this is going to do it's going to make that cuticle a little bit thicker so then your mesophyll your your chlorophyll where your chlorophyll sitting doesn't end up getting burnt so that is why you want to do it nice and gradually you got to build that plant up you got to essentially make some calluses on the plant. So that is a very, very important. Hardening off in cold climates is essential to proper growth and a happy, healthy plant. Now, when it comes to transplanting, some plants transplant way better than others. Tomatoes tend to transplant poorly, um, especially if we don't provide them shelter despite the fact that we have hardened them off for two weeks before. For whatever reason, when you start tussling their roots, they get a little bit upset. So for tomatoes, pumpkins, squash, melons, that sort of thing, I try to limit the amount that I fiddle with those roots. I also try to dig a hole that is anywhere from 
two to three times bigger than the root ball that I'm dealing with. And then I actually like to plant them a little bit deeper than just the baseline that it came out of the pot with. So with a tomato, you can actually go pretty deep because there is a lot of meristematic tissue we like to call it, inside that stem. And that meristematic tissue on pumpkins, watermelons, just melons in general, squash, tomatoes, peppers, that meristematic tissue is stem cell tissue and it's undifferentiated tissue, meaning it doesn't know if it is a root or if it is a leaf yet or a stem. So what it will do is based on the environment you place it in, it's going to turn into what environment you've, you've given it. And if you give it a dark, moist hole in underground with no light, what ends up happening is you end up with roots. Now, if that stem or that area was above the ground and it was exposed to air and light and openness, it's going to formulate leaves. So we can actually plant those plants a little bit deeper because of that undifferentiated plant cell tissue that allows us that opportunity. So take advantage of that because it's going to make a stronger root system. It's going to make that plant better at capturing water and nutrients and it's going to overall make a stronger plant that can then transplant a lot better as well. So I like to plant them just a little bit deeper but I don't like to fiddle with those roots especially with melons, pumpkins, that sort of thing. Try not to fiddle with the roots too much. Just plant the whole ball in place. You can use a compost, a manure, a slow-release granular, organic or inorganic in that hole with it. There's no reason why you can't and then just uh, basically place that soil over top. From there, you will want to mulch if that is something you are interested in. So mulch your area, water, and then mulch, and then water again, just to saturate that that mulch and make it nice and moist. And that's going to hold that moisture in. Moisture is very, very important when it comes to trying to reduce the effects of transplant shock. And it's definitely a step you do not want to skip. In that watering, if you could provide something that has phosphorus or a high level of phosphorus, that is ideal. Phosphorus is integral in ensuring better root health. And when we have better root health, again, we have better transplant success. Transplant shock shows up in the leaves by droopiness or just a goofy looking plant. And while it shows up in the stems and the leaves, it has nothing to do with the stems or the leaves. It usually generates or it's usually powered from that root. And I have a video on transplant shock and, it, and I go into a little bit more detail in there. But when our roots are harmed, we aren't taking up water, we aren't taking up nutrients. If we're not taking up those two factors, our upper biomass suffers. Now, while some of that limpness can come from that upper biomass and the fact that we maybe haven't uh, gotten our stomata, our guard cells, or our cuticle, like our, our cuticle on the outside of our mesophyll, strong enough to be able to withstand this change, it's mostly the roots that are the issue. So if we can provide a phosphorus-based fertilizer or something higher in phosphorus, this is going to help reduce that transplant shock for all the plants. So after we've mulched, we've watered, we've fertilized, 
we want to then cover that plant and you only want to cover them for about a week. This is just going to give them that little bit of extra cushion. Now, some of you are going to think that this is total overkill and I'm not going to say you're wrong there. It is overkill if all you want is the plant to survive and produce some tomatoes. Yes, absolutely. Total overkill. I will agree. But if you don't want that downtime and you actually want pretty high yields and you want tomatoes sooner in the season, you want flowers sooner in the season, sooner in the season, you need to make sure you're protecting that plant. We don't want downtime. We want every single day to count, especially in a cold climate. We are working on something called growing degree days and growing degree days is determined not just by the number of days in the summer, but the number of ideal days for growing in our growing area. Look that up. It's an interesting concept that so, so many people tend to miss out on. So it's ideal days where the sun, the temperature, and everything is working together. Every day we have a cloudy day, a cold day, or we have a transplant shock day. We are ticking off that time of total days we need to grow. So to be able to powerhouse our plant through to the end, we want to ensure we have zero down days. And the way I do that after transplanting is by using a five gallon pail with the bottom cut off. And I just simply place that over top of my tomato plant or around my tomato plant. And it shades it from wind and intense, intense sun. From there, I'll leave it on there for about a week. I will water through this bucket. I will care for the plant through that bucket. And then I will remove it. This, it works miracles, you guys. My grandma was actually the one that introduced me to this many, many, many years ago. And she uses uh, five-gallon pails. And she also uses cedar um, roof tiles, the roofing stuff, the cedar tiles for roofs. She uses a combination of those two, especially for vegetables that don't transplant well. Now, you don't have to do this with annuals for the most part. They'll be fine. Same with perennials. They tend to do okay. But if you're doing anything exotic in your yard, then I suggest doing this. If you're doing your vegetables, I suggest doing this. Because the end result is you want food <laughs> and you want more food. The more you can get off the plant, the better. So if we are able to support the plant in some way, then we should get it done that way. Throughout the year, you're going to run into some odd stuff. So this will range in a, in a number of different ways from diseases to plants falling over, that sort of thing. And the number one way to prevent all of this is through staking. So if you're noticing a plant isn't upright and it's laying on the soil in any capacity, the best way to prevent broken branches, to prevent disease, to prevent insect infestation is to stake your plants. It is a solve all for everything. And so you can stake zucchinis, you can run cucumbers up trellises, you can put cages on tomatoes, you name it, it's possible. And it's important because it's going to ensure higher yields. And it's great for anyone that doesn't have a lot of space. So if you are in a uh, an area where you are 
not able to have access to heaps and heaps of land, then this is an awesome solution for you. So staking, trellising, that sort of thing, definitely want to try it and, and give it a shot. For other disease control and just prevention, generally a mulch is going to help keep your weeds down, which typically will keep uh, a lot of diseases away, but some are just inevitable and they're going to happen. What I will say is try to stay away from too many of the crazy DIY stuff. Some of it's a little bit crazy and it doesn't work very well. And just work on identifying what the issue is and immediately attacking it. Now, you're going to get yellow leaves and you're going to get spots and blotches. Don't stress out about those too much. A plant is usually pretty resilient. They can generally figure out their own thing. The ones that I'm more concerned about are uh, slugs and snails, something that's physically eating the leaf in high capacity, or powdery or downy mildew. Those are my two big concerns. Now, if you see downy or powdery mildew in your garden, immediately remove the leaf. Don't even question it. Don't even wait to see what happens. Just remove the leaf. It may save you a huge headache after that there are some fixes for it downy there's not so much to it but for for downy mildew milk oddly enough works pretty good whether that be yogurt or whatever the case is mixed in with water it works great and um and go from there for bugs and that sort of thing Sticky traps work pretty good. For slugs and snails, beer actually works pretty good. And then things like garlic and pepper, like cayenne pepper, uh, black pepper, anything with a spice to it. And so that will actually deter a huge number of insects out of your garden. They don't like to get pepper in their eyes any more than you do. So let's just put it that way. It also deters a lot of birds and a, a lot of um, other critters such as uh, cats, things, things of that nature. So that, that is one thing to keep in mind. If you lose some leaves throughout the year, don't stress about that too much. That's totally normal. You should be pruning anyways. So pruning pruning those lower branches anything that's laying on the soil getting rid of that that's also going to help enormously with disease and pest control just in general but my biggest thing is just make sure you're watering and you're using a high quality all-purpose fertilizer for that first two months so may to june you're going to want to make sure you're fertilizing with an all-purpose don't stress too much about changing that up and then just water every single day and I know that seems excessive but it's necessary in some zones so you can always check it out but generally every single day is what's best now I'm not talking running the sprinklers for an hour every single day I'm talking 15 minutes half hour depending on how warm it is just running that water and just spending time with the plants and watering them in that sense for when it gets later in the season, around July, August, it's time to start thinking about changing up your fertilizer regimen. So you want something that's a little bit higher in maybe phosphorus or potassium. That's those last two numbers. You can get these formulas very easily. They're called bloom formulas or flower formulas or fruit and vegetable formulas. All that's saying is that there's less nitrogen and more phosphorus and potassium. And this is important because phosphorus and potassium are 
integral in both DNA, RNA, and enzyme reactions within the plant. And because of that, they are very, very important when it comes to making flowers and fruit and seeds ultimately. So make sure you change up that fertilizer regimen. It's also going to help flowering. Um, it's going to increase your yields and it's going to induce flowering in a lot of cases as well. So definitely want to switch it up mid-season. And if you choose not to, you're still going to get flowers and you're still going to get vegetables. So don't stress out about it too much. It's just if you want that higher yield and a little bit better result, it is, it's been proven to, to do some miracle work there. Well, I think we're done. Let's start with that for the podcast and see where we go from there. I'm assuming that these will get longer and longer as we go on, as we get some more guests and stuff on here. But I wanted to test this out mostly and just see audio-wise how this works and how uploading goes and that sort of thing. So let's start with this uh, and see, see where we end up. Let me know what you guys want to see out of the podcast. I'd be interested to get some feedback from you guys, see where we want this to go. I want to aim for once a month right now, just with YouTube, because I post three times a week. Any more than that, I feel like it could be a little bit too much for me. So let's start with once a month and see what happens. If we end up enjoying it and we're having lots of fun, I have no problem doing it more often, but for right now, let's start there. I want to thank you guys so much for listening, not watching, listening. See how I changed that up there? Make sure you do whatever you do for podcasts. I don't know what that is. You know better than I do because you clearly listen to podcasts if you're here. And uh, I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.